0: Plugged In Podcast, presented by the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome back to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Stevens. I'm a policy analyst here at the Institute for Energy Research.
1: Hey, I'm Jordan McGillis, joining Alex here today.
0: And joining us as our guest today is Todd Myers. Todd is the director of the Center for the Environment at the Washington Policy Center. Is one of the nation's leading experts on free market environmental policy and the author of the 2011 book "Ecofads: How the Rise of Trendy Environmentalism Is Harming the Environment." Todd was one of the first guests on this podcast, and he last appeared in October of 2018 when we discussed Washington Washington State's carbon tax vote. Todd, welcome back to the show.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's been a long time, and uh, quite a bit has has evolved in that interval. Um, you and I talked at the state policy network annual meeting earlier this month, uh, here in September, 2021. And, um, a couple of the topics that we discussed were, uh, smart meters and smart thermostats. So we'll, we'll get to that, but I want to start with, with carbon pricing and, um, want to hear what's going on in your state. We know that there's been an, an introduction of a, of a new law, uh, that's being called cap and invest. Can you tell us what's happening with that?
2: Yeah, so it's uh, the uh, governor and the legislator are touting it as one of the most aggressive environmental and climate policies in the nation. And I have to say that I would agree with them. Um, It's very much like California, um, where they have a cap and trade system and the revenue raised um, is simply being spent um, on other political priorities and for special interests. And there's a long laundry list of panels and and things that they will be spending it on. So it is a massive tax increase. Um, and the cap um, is set to zero out emissions by the year 2050. Um, that's actually not the the biggest concern. I think the biggest concern is, is the fact that it's supposed to cut in half, emissions in half, just 10 years from now, which I think is incredibly aggressive, and it's going to be very expensive and disruptive. So um it's that's that's what's happened after the voters twice and even in Washington state um uh voted against carbon taxes um the legislature went ahead and, and did this this year and and hope that they can get away with it
0: i've seen you've written a little bit about the sort of impact this will have on electricity and fuel prices could you just talk our listeners through um the projections there and what you see this doing to fuel prices in the future
2: yeah so it's um Uh, It will start off probably about $20
0: a metric ton,
2: um, which is about $0.18 a gallon um, right out of the gates. Now, um, I was just, when we were in Florida, I think uh, gas was about $2.80 a gallon or something when I saw it. Uh, Here in Washington State at my local corner uh, gas station, it's about $4.20 a gallon. So we already have some of the highest gas prices in the country. And they're going to add 18 cents a gallon, basically, to start with. Um, And then it will probably go up over the course of the decade to uh, $50 a metric ton, which is about 45 cents a gallon. So just that part alone is very expensive. But they weren't satisfied with that. They also added what's called a low-carbon fuel standard on top of that. And the current price in California for the low-carbon fuel standard is $200 a metric ton. Now, the, the target is only about 10% initially. So instead of being $2, it's only, well, only 20 cents more. <laughs> so we have uh, gas price increases uh, in the near future of, you know, 40 to 50 cents a gallon coming.
1: Can you talk a bit about the, the scope of um, who is on the hook to directly pay for the, for the permits or, or allocations, whatever they're called?
2: Well, directly, I, I mean, it's it's the uh, it's oil and gas companies that sell gasoline in Washington State. We have a we don't do much. Um, our electricity is very clean because we have primarily hydro in Washington State, and then nuclear is our second uh, biggest source. People don't well, I shouldn't say second biggest source; the second biggest carbon free source. We also have some coal <clears throat> that we ship in, and some natural gas. But nuclear is more than all of the wind and solar in Washington State combined. But we never talk about that. We talk about wind and solar. <clears throat> so excuse me, we won't pay much for electricity for the carbon tax, but we will pay for a lot for home heating. So home heating and uh, transportation fuels are the primary thing. And, and the people who pay that, of course, are homeowners and drivers.
1: Got it. Um, and the the cap is going to be, gradually lowered over the course of the coming decades uh, how did they decide how to establish the particular point at which at which we set here at the beginning
2: well if you ask them it is of course the the catch-all excuse for everything these days which is it's science of course it's not science uh, one of the things that i tell people is that science is not divisible by five so when you set a, a target of zero emissions by 2050 um and you know a a 50 percent reduction by 2030 those numbers weren't based on any sort of analysis of what is feasible or economics or you know the potential impacts or anything else those are political targets um because they sound cool uh independent of whether they actually you know do more harm than good um, so that's what that's how it was set. It is it is a political target, not based on anything other than round numbers. Sound cool to politicians.
1: And historically, though, Todd, you have uh, supported some forms of carbon pricing. Can you distinguish uh, the forms that would appeal to you and contrast those with with this approach?
2: So yeah, I do believe that there is risk from CO2. I believe that risk. Is, is wildly exaggerated on the left. One of the things that I complain about all the time is the phrase, the climate crisis, because the goal is to create a crisis mentality. And when you tell somebody they have a crisis mentality, you're not complimenting them. What you're telling them is that they're being irrational. So I don't, I very much oppose the sort of crisis mentality, but I do think there is risk. How much risk though is difficult to pin down. And so what I have advocated is, uh, uh what's typically called a carbon tax swap which is is that you increase prices on um uh, co2 emitting forms of energy and you cut taxes and regulations elsewhere um now what people argue is todd that's that's very cute but it's not realistic um and that politicians won't go along with that well okay i right. Uh, I live in Washington State. Politicians don't go along with a lot of my ideas, so I I appreciate that critique. But I think it is uh, a far superior alternative um, to what is being proposed. Um, so I can only propose what I think is best. And I actually think what we ought to do is a, is a tax cut, um, because if we eliminate the regulations, if we eliminate the unbelievably wasteful subsidies we have now, and then do a tax cut, I think we can. Uh, do more with less, um, and actually end up better off with that kind of approach. So that's that's kind of where I'm coming from. The challenge I have in this, and Jordan, you and I talked about this, and this is my worry, is, is that um, politicians take good ideas and screw them up. And so it is always a balance when I'm trying to do public policy of promoting ideas that I think would be good in their, you know, the form that I would support, but that it gives support to politicians who want to do bad things with those good ideas. I appreciate all of those critiques. So I try to be clear about what I want. I try to be clear about what I don't want. Um, And so that's that's kind of where I've come down. Mm -hmm. I don't talk very much about the carbon tax anymore, because I think the the public doesn't like it and politicians abuse it. So now what I have looked at is trying to find other ways to empower people to reduce their energy use, to save money, to do things that are good for them, independent of CO two reductions, but that also help the environment.
1: Mm-hmm. I have uh, I won't speak for Alex. I'll just speak for myself here. I I have significant skepticism regarding the ability of uh, our models to quantify the risk and the harms that that climate change will present. So I, I share your view that. There is risk here. Um, I'm very skeptical of how we can translate those into present dollar terms. Uh, yeah. But sometimes I go in circles. And and what would be most seductive to me, when I when I'm feeling um, like a, a bit more confident about carbon pricing, I'm more attracted to a cap and trade style because it to me it, it seems it would prioritize the emissions limit that we've decided is reasonable to stay under and then allows the, the price to float as opposed to establishing the price first. Um, why why do you think a tax style is, in theory, better than a cap-and-trade style?
2: I think that you it's the devil you choose. Either you choose the price. With the price, you can at least choose you know how much you have to offset in terms of taxes, right? You raise the the gas price five cents a gallon and you offset other costs. But you're still making a decision, and you're you're absolutely correct. Coming up with the right price is very difficult. Um, but so is coming up with the right cap. And what we have found with cap and trade systems wherever they have been tried is that politicians fiddle with the cap. Um, when mm-hmm. it gets inconvenient, either because they make it more strict, because they, they want to show how much they care about the environment, or they simply waive the cap when the price gets too high. So I think that the difference between um, simply putting price and putting a cap, they're both political, and they both have pitfalls. It, economists who have looked at this find that the putting a price is more flexible, is less volatile, um, and that people can plan for it more. Um, and so that's sort of the way I lean. But um, uh, but yes, I, I I hear your arguments. And 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 there is history of cap-and-trade systems working very well with the sulfur dioxide market. Instead of the regulations that they were proposing to reduce sulfur dioxide and acid rain, they did a cap-and-trade. And it worked much better at far less cost than the regulations that were being proposed. So um, I don't disagree with your approach. I just think that whether you choose a price or a cap, it's a political decision, and mm-hmm. that has consequences.
1: Certainly is now. I'm going to go deep into a rabbit hole here. Uh, I want to toss an idea out to you.
2: I'm I'm a wonk, so I'm all exactly. for this. Exactly.
1: We we are think tank people thinking in tanks right now. Um, okay, so you you you're well aware of the literature, and you just described that economists tend to think it would be more efficient to go the tax route. Now, I want to give you a further piece of my uh, cap and trade idea. Again, I'm not really for this, but if I wanted to do carbon pricing, here's how how I'd be interested in doing it. We hear a lot about the regressive effects of of carbon pricing because lower income households uh, spend a higher percentage of their um, available budgets on energy. So my idea is that instead of directly selling credits, to companies, we would issue allocations to each household based on its population, and then allow those households to make the choice uh, to potentially sell their their allocations to companies in some sort of digital marketplace. Or if they're of a more environmental mindset, they many people would just say, you know what, I'm going to, to eat my allocation, and we're going to reduce uh, emissions further that way. Um, but that, to me, would seem like a, a way to um, somewhat more fluidly get at that regressive issue Um, now it runs into all the same political problems that that you face in terms of setting the cap Uh, but I find that somewhat attractive have you ever seen that sort of idea uh, tossed out there
2: I have not and let me just say I love that idea um, because what I'm all about is empowering people using technology and we can do you know Far more with technology today than we could, you know, even 15 years ago. People forget that the iPhone didn't even exist 15 years ago, and so there are opportunities to do things like you're talking about in a much more simple way through technology and, and, through and information. We could, use the,
1: we could use the word blockchain, and then people would be really attracted. To That's it. exactly right. That's all you have to do, and everybody loves it all of a sudden. the
2: The only the concern I have about that is is that. One of the problems that we see with especially low income folks is that um, they also face more barriers when trying to navigate, you know, bureaucracy and things like that. And we could make the system very simple, but I still think that you would find that middle class and upper class folks would be more likely to take those sorts of advantages and to deal with them than people who are just struggling to get by. So I think it's a much more feasible idea than it was 15 years ago. I still prefer simple. Simple is better to me. You know, put a simple price, cut taxes elsewhere, and walk away. Um, and to deal with the problem that you're talking about, that's why I argue, That's why I advocate a tax cut, so that every so at the beginning, everybody starts off better than they were. And mm-hmm. I think there there are lots of opportunities to do that. Like I say, we waste an ungodly amount of money on climate policies that do literally nothing for the environment. We, we need to get rid of those because they're just about symbolism. They're just about falling for fads and politicians proving that they care about the environment by burning money to you know, claim that they're helping the climate. So I think that there are opportunities to deal with this situation that you come up with. I like your idea very much. I just think it's, uh, it's a little more complicated than I think would work well although i think it's 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 less complicated now than it was 15 years ago
0: so i hate to reveal myself as sort of the cynic here but i think what todd has alluded to earlier i I
2: will go (laughs) toe-to-toe with you on cynicism so but uh, let's hear it
0: uh well i i was just going to say you know i think that the hand-waving of political problems not being policy problems is a problem that is. that we run into when we talk about all these carbon tax, uh, policies and everything. And, um, yeah. Todd, you've alluded to it. There's, it's not as simple as just saying, uh, set a carbon price at the exact amount. These decisions are gonna be made politically. And, um, right. Unfortunately, I think that the willing politician who is willing to go along with the economists and, uh, listen to the blackboard proposal, um, Unfortunately, I think that the political process will actually select them out of the decision-making process because they're not willing to do the sort of things that politicians and bureaucrats do, which is uh, hand out favors and engage in symbolic victories over environmental policies in ways that are um, damaging to us economically, but um, also sometimes are even worse for the environment. You, you and I are on the same
2: page. And that, that's why um, I said that's and that's I I I just sort of alluded to it, but let me say it more clearly, which is um, I I have moved on from advocating carbon taxes um, that are revenue neutral or or negative, right? I mean that actually have a tax cut because I think what you're saying is exactly correct. From two ends, one the public doesn't seem to like the taxes um, here, even here in Washington State. We had two carbon taxes on the ballot. One was revenue neutral. One was not. The voters voted against them, basically in the same percentage. Um, politicians, uh, when presented with those, those policies, don't choose them. They do what what exactly what you said, which is they say, "Okay, we'll make it revenue neutral, but we'll put this ten percent over here for stuff we like," uh, right? Which then turns into twenty percent, and then turns into thirty percent. So I don't. Um, I want to make it clear. I still think that they're that, th- that it is a better policy than the alternative, but. The things that I advocate now are are empowering people to do more with less, that help in ways that help them, that also help the environment. I just think that's a better way is to connect people more directly with uh, environmental policy and environmental benefits, because then <clears throat> politicians have less of a say. And let me—I'll give you an example here in Seattle. Um, the city of Seattle wanted basically to do things that banned Uber, that made Uber very expensive and very difficult. And so they passed those rules, right? And we have a socialist city council. Um, and when I say that, I mean, they are socialist and they brag about being socialist. Um, their chambers, even in Seattle, were filled at the next council meeting and they undid the policy because people like Uber, even in very left-wing Seattle, they recognize the benefits to themselves. And the superiority of the system to taxis. So when you give people power and control over their own lives, and you know energy bills and other things like that, they're very reluctant to give that power back. So that's the focus of my work now. Um, like i said, i don't I don't back away from saying that you know a revenue neutral or revenue negative carbon tax would be a better policy in many ways. But for the reasons that you're mentioning, It's not something I spend much time on anymore because I just think it's very difficult to get to.
1: Well, that's a perfect segue to the other topic we wanted to discuss here today, which is your commentary on smart thermostats and smart meters. Uh, You wrote a paper um, in 2020, I believe, with the Center for Growth and Opportunity, which is at Utah State University. Great think tank, doing a lot of good stuff. Uh, Can you take us through the, the evolution on that front and how you see it fitting into this framework you're describing of uh, people seeing environmental benefits that align with their interests?
2: Yeah, so there's two messages I wanted to discuss, which is there is this notion that without politicians and without government, nothing good for the environment would ever get done or on energy efficiency and things like that. And what we see in the real world actually is just the opposite. So the story I told um, in the paper at the Center for Growth and Opportunity about smart meters is that President Obama rolled them out and spent huge amounts of federal money and local money to put what are called smart meters. So what a lot of people don't realize is is that prior to smart meters, prior to about a decade ago, um, if you wanted... if you wanted your utility to know that your power was out, you had to call them. There was no way for them to know because they didn't have two-way communication between your meter um, and the utility. And there used to be meter readers not too long ago. That's the way they would find out how much electricity that that you would use. They would actually come out and read it on the side of your house. Now, uh, thanks to the internet and smart meters, that changed. And what was argued was, that smart meters were going to allow people to measure electricity every 15 minutes and see how much they were using and use those you know sort of government supplied smart meters to help economize but i don't think most people even realize they have a smart meter because they don't use them that way what we do use instead though are smart thermostats like google nest or ecobee um, or um, if you're a geek like me, you put a little thing in your electrical uh, circuit uh, called sense, a sense monitor, which tells me literally at every second, exactly what uh, utilities are on, uh, you know, appliances are on in my house, and how much electricity I'm using, um, because it has artificial intelligence. And it samples, the smart meters do about every 15 minutes, the sense samples electricity a million times a second. So, none of those, the smart meters, are the, or I should say the smart thermostats and then the sensor, like Sense, are not. didn't come from government, they came from the free market. Um, and I think they are so superior to what the government is providing, um, that, it's, that now the smart meters are basically used to collect information for your bill, and determine if your power is off and not much else because they're not useful for much else because the technology has moved so far beyond.
0: Yeah. Can you give us a sense of like the sort of savings that consumers see with smart thermostats? I think that that's important for our listeners to understand.
2: Yeah. So the great thing about the smart thermostats is, is that it, uh, they actually, you know, sort of use artificial intelligence to figure out not just, um, you know, what temperature you're comfortable at, but how to get it to that temperature in a way that is energy efficient. Um, There used to be, you know, the old thermostats that you would set that people would have to try to figure out and were difficult. um, There were some that would get an energy star rating um, because they could say, oh, you could set your temperature low during the day when you're out of the house and then higher um, when you got home and then low in the evening. But people didn't really use them like that because they were very, difficult. Um, and so in fact, what studies found is, is that those uh, thermostats, um, which were given an energy star rating by the federal government, actually caused people to use more electricity, not less, because the programming was so difficult. Smart thermostats do the opposite. They use artificial intelligence. So you can basically say, here's kind of you know the temperature that I want and then you either turn it up or turn it down and then it learns over time. and it can save you, you know, uh, 10 to 20%, sort of typical, I mean, it can save more than that other cases and less than others, but that's kind of the range that it saves you just basically by doing nothing because it learns. And then the other thing is, is that when there are additional incentives, such as if you're using time of day pricing, uh, which occurs in some places in Texas and California is going to, that it will actually help you um, avoid using electricity when it is most expensive. So there were studies in Portland, Oregon and elsewhere um, where they would do what's called um, or at Google nested a, a, a study um, uh, where it was they would give you a rebate. If you didn't use electricity or if you, you kept your heating lower during a certain period of time, four to seven during peak demand, and it would either turn your thermostat up or down two degrees um, to reduce the demand. And it would all be voluntary and you could override it. But one of the clever things that it would do is is that in anticipation of reaching that four o'clock hour, when prices started to go up, it would actually precondition your house starting at 3 p.m. So that it was a little bit hotter or colder than you wanted it, but that your house would then hold the temperature through those peak demand hours. you You wouldn't want to change the temperature. So I'm an energy geek, and I don't. You know, at three o'clock, I don't think to change my thermostat to preheat or cool, but it can do it for you. so those are very simple things. those are things that work with the consumer, not against it, right? It's a carrot and not a stick. Um, and I think that's the opportunity. and like, like I said, the government supplied smart meters don't do any of that um, and have been surpassed by the technology and so one of the key things I wanted to say is is that this notion that markets can't do it without government instruction is just absolutely wrong. It's the other way around that markets do far better than politicians and government at coming up with some of these solutions.
1: Well said. Uh, very specific question. I don't need a specific answer to this, but if you could give us an order of magnitude answer, how much does the Sense technology cost you to have on on your home?
2: So it's uh, it's a one time purchase. I think it's three hundred dollars. So you don't have to, it's not as, once you install it, okay. uh, it is, uh, it's not like a service or a, or a, a monthly fee. Okay. Um, and then it syncs to your phone and then I could look. Uh, on my phone, anywhere in the world, um, and it was fun because I would give speeches and I would hold it up and I would be able to see, you know, what was going on. And like there would be times when the microwave would be on, and then I would call my wife earlier and I would ask her what she microwaved. She would freak out, wondering <laughs> why I was stalking her. But I mean, it, I mean, literally anywhere in the world, you could see what was happening in your home. But even more important, it would tell you here's what appliances are using electricity. Now, again, I I think about energy a lot. I was shocked to see how much my incandescent light bulbs were using in my kitchen because I had a bunch of them. And so I went and switched them to LEDs and I paid for um, the purchase of those LEDs within a few months just because I was able to get the data. Um, I don't know that I ever paid back uh, the cost of my sense. Washington State has one of the lowest electricity rates in the country. So it was more about me being a geek than me saving money. But in other parts of the country, I definitely think that. The data that you get from it would help uh, offset the cost, you know, over the course of a few years.
1: Aside from the light bulbs, are there any appliances or uh, areas of your home that you were surprised to find were major energy consumers?
2: Well, we are unlike other homes in Washington State. And we have an air conditioner, um, and I noticed that when we swapped the old air conditioner for the new one, the amount of electricity that we used when it turned on was cut in half. I mean, which is really remarkable, and air conditioners use a lot of energy. So, uh, I think I think had I anticipated that, I probably would have swapped it out earlier because that it pays back very rapidly. Um, even in a place like Washington State, where we don't have super hot summers usually, so it's just insights like that um, that help you make decisions, not just on day to day but you know for major purchases and one of the things that and I spoke with the founder of sense and one of the things that he was saying that they're hoping to do in the future with artificial intelligence is to get a baseline on how your heater is doing, how your air conditioner is doing. And then if they watch it degrade over time, they can sort of say, hey, you know, your, your air conditioner is old and starting to fail. You might want to think about replacing it. So um, they're not there yet, but um, those are the sorts of opportunities that we now have that, like I said, just, you know, not too long ago wouldn't even have been conceivable. And now they're literally in the palm of
0: my hand. Yeah, I think this paper does a great job of talking about the advantages of consumer choice and why it's important to allow innovation to work for energy consumers. Um, you you talked a little bit about it, but I thought the interesting one of the interesting things was that you know the government program which spent billions of dollars um, identified basically the wrong technology, and so much of our energy policy today at the state and federal level is all about identifying specific technologies to use. Um so could you just talk a little bit about, you know, how much money was actually spent on the smart metering program and um just the way that uh you know, these smart thermostats have pretty much made all of that uh not necessarily obsolete but have completely blown away the sort of efficiency uh, benchmarks and things that uh that Uh, were the goals of this program well the specific amount in terms of how much government spent i I can't remember off the top of my head it's in my paper and so
2: people can go to it at the center for growth and opportunity and read the paper excuse me and see uh, what those numbers are but they're huge i mean they were billions of dollars um but
1: here's the difference i think let me jump in right there i'm I'm looking at the paper on my computer 3.4 billion worth of funding uh, yeah through that program
2: and and I'm certain that and there was more paid locally by utilities because that was the federal portion. So and all of those costs, of course, get passed passed on to ratepayers. So you know it's a combination of ratepayer and taxpayer funding. So it's a huge amount of money. But here I think is the fundamental difference that we see in the technologies. The technologies that are chosen by government and then utilities are gonna reflect the goals of government and utilities. And so the smart meters came to be primarily a method of providing customer service, which is good, right? To make sure that your lights are on and to know when your lights are off um, and to collect data for paying bills, okay? So now utilities can spend less on service centers, you know, either dealing with bill problems or dealing with you know, whether your lights are on. Both of those things are good, but they are primarily you know, for the benefit of the utility. What they aren't, what they don't do is help the consumer. Smart thermostats and sense and other things like that are consumer facing. So they have to benefit the consumer. They have to save you electricity. They have to provide good service. And the story I tell in that paper is, is that what ends up happening is, is that Smart thermostats become a tool for the utilities because they work better (laughs) than what the utilities are using because they are consumer-facing. So the the demands of the consumer um, are, in some cases, higher than the demands of utilities, which have very narrow and very specific demands. And that's where the real progress is going to become. And I can tell you of another technology that there is a similar thing to smart thermostats for water. Um, And it was called buoy. And now there are other ones um, uh, uh, that hook up to your water main and do the same thing where they, you know, see how much water you're using and they can actually use artificial intelligence to use what is using water. And I spoke to the founder of one of those technologies. And what she said is is that they started becoming the service center for water utilities. Because what what happened is, is that if your uh, toilet was running or you were leaking water, the, the water utility couldn't tell you what was going on. They would just tell you, look, you're using a lot of water. We don't know why. Check it out. But but the buoy or the other technologies could tell you <laughs> what was probably the likely culprit. And so she said is, is that, you know, not? we actually ended up being the water utilities service center because we could tell you more about how you're using water than they could. And that's what I think ends up happening is because these technologies are consumer focused because they are working for the consumer and not for the utilities for government. They end up providing more immediately useful data and information that allow you to use less electricity, less water, and those sorts of things. Uh, And that's ultimately why I think they surpass government um, sponsored and promoted technologies.
1: I've got another rabbit hole. I want to jump down here. Uh, Something else you and I briefly talked about earlier this month is this very strange program that's been introduced in uh, Guangdong province in China. Uh, this has some of the elements that we'd, we'd view as positive, and it, and it displays an amazing digital um, adoption in the country, but it's also quite dystopian. It's called carbon coins, and <laughs> the the Guangdong government now enables, we'll say, uh, citizens of the province in, in various cities like Guangzhou and Dongguan, to track things like their steps uh, they take each day or their public transit usage. And they're they're then issued, again, these carbon coins, which give them discounts at local uh, merchants, vendors, restaurants um, through WeChat pay. So there's a very interesting integration of of technology, but there's obviously the the cloud hanging over this, that, that it's being Administered by the the Communist Party of China.
2: Yeah, I think it's a good example of what we just talked about there, which is who does the technology serve? Does the technology serve the people or the government? Now, you know what what all of these technologies, and especially in China, where they have you know the social credit system and the, and the surveillance state, um, what they claim is is it's for your own good, but it's actually for the government. Um, and i think that's what's going on here is because the rules are set by the politicians to reach political goals that are set by politicians not by what the consumer wants so if they say look here's you know how much, here's your transit and you're walking or you're biking and we're going to give you credit and coins for this sort of things as opposed to other things um, you know all of those metrics are set by the government there is an alternative which is more consumer facing um, which there is an app called cowline And what CowLines is, is basically a, a version of Google Maps. And you say, okay, I want to get from here to there. And it says, okay, here are the ways to get there. This way is the fastest. This way is the cheapest. And this way is the least CO2 emitting. So it will say, okay, take the bus from here to here and then walk the last, you know, half mile or something like that. And it will give you those options. And you can choose whichever one you want. Um, that's a consumer-facing approach. So if you're concerned about CO2 emissions, you can take the lowest CO2 emitting approach. If you're concerned about price, you can take the cheapest one. Or if if you just want to get there fast, it'll tell you how to do that. That, I think, is the contrast to top-down imposed government systems, which you, I think, correctly called dystopian, as opposed to a more market system, which says, I'm going to give you some choices, and and here's what the best way to do it. Google is now using some data from the National Renewable Energy Laboratory about, you know, giving you uh, different choices as well, um, based not only um, on sort of the different uh, modes, but also even calculating if you're going up and down hills, how many stoplights you have, and telling you, okay, this is a better way to reduce CO2 than going this way. So the technology is getting really cool. Um but it's not working against the user, it's working for the user. And I think those are the most sort of durable carbon policies, uh, because you don't have people looking to backlash against CO2 reductions. You have people, you know, embracing them because they benefit you in you know how fast you can get somewhere and how much you have to pay. That's the way to, to, to do this. Um, there's an article in The Economist actually. I think I just saw today or yesterday, talking about how there's a growing backlash against green technologies in the UK. Um, We saw that in Australia when they imposed a carbon tax. The next government came in and pulled it out. Guess what happened? Carbon emissions went back up again. Um, Political solutions are fragile. Solutions that work with people are durable.
0: I think we can all agree with that, and we're all probably in violent agreement with the idea that uh technology in the hands of consumers is going to do a lot more good than um political uh, so-called solutions to these issues. Um is there anything that we haven't touched on that you think is important for our listeners on either the cap and trade program there in Washington state or on um uh, uh, smart uh smart metering and thermometers? I think I
2: would I would end with this with just um a general message which is that People on the center-right like me um, tend to be skeptical of environmentalism and environmental issues because they see it as a Trojan horse for socialism. And living in a you know, city where there's, or socialists own the city council and talk about environmentalism all the time, I can tell you that is exactly correct. <laughs> a lot of environmental issues are Trojan horses for socialism. But that doesn't mean that environmentalism and, and concern about the environment is. And that doesn't mean we should shy away from it. If you look at a map of the United States, look at where the red parts of the country are. It's where the environment is. It's where the nature is. Um, Conservatives live surrounded by the environment because we love it. We hike, we hunt, we fish. Um, So we should not be afraid of these issues, even as we reject the left-wing approach. And the beauty is that our ideas actually work better than theirs, for the environment and for people there is i think an assumption coming out of the 1970s that the way that you address environmental problems is you create the epa and you impose big regulations Um, and that worked Uh, in a limited way i mean i think it worked for the clean air act and the clean water act because those are very specific types of problems but it doesn't work in many other areas the endangered species act is a perfect one where it has does not have a good record of recovering species markets do much better in so many ways for the environment and what i would just say is to conservatives and people on the center right like me Don't be afraid of environmental issues. We care about them. Say it out loud, but also reject the left and have confidence that our ideas are better. I think sometimes when I talk to conservatives, they don't have the confidence that the market um, is better. They um, ironically sort of buy the left's argument that a prosperous economy is at odds with the environment, and that simply is not true. Um, The left believes that which is why at the end of the day, they're willing to sacrifice the economy for their environmental goals. We don't have to do that. And what you find around the world is that prosperous economies are environmentally clean economies. um, And we need to have the confidence to say that and not simply reject environmentalism as sort of a left-wing plot. We need to embrace the environmentalism that we do believe in and live frankly every day and have the confidence that our ideas are better because they are.
0: Our guest today has been Todd Myers of the Washington Policy Center. Todd, thank you for taking the time to join us today.
2: Yeah, it was, it was very fun to talk with you. Let's let's do it again before three years pass.